You can grab a seat. Uh, do me a courtesy. Turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 1. Uh, this week we're going to be taking a break from our series going through 1 Kings. Uh, and we'll instead be spending some time here in this text. We're specifically going to be camping out around uh, verses 7 through to 10. Uh, but we'll also kind of spend some time in verses 3 to 10 because in the Greek it's all one run-on sentence. And so it's meant to be taken as a whole. Uh, but I realize that among us, uh, we're all coming from different backgrounds, different levels of uh, experience and understanding. And so maybe some background about what we're about to read would be helpful. Uh, this text that we'll be spending our evening in. And so uh, let me just say a couple things. The, the New Testament is a fascinating document uh, in that it is actually a collection of documents that tell this sort of unified story. It begins with the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that collectively tell the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But from those four Gospels, you move into a variety of literature. You've got history, you've got uh, ancient letters, you've got apocalypses, you've, you've got all sorts of different categories. The book of Hebrews is probably actually just a transcript from an ancient sermon. Uh, but, but all of these different sort of plurality of literary types are ultimately unpacking uh, the reality of what took place in those four Gospels. And they're documenting the increasing reach of uh, the message of Jesus and the Gospel of Christ as it starts in Jerusalem and it spreads to the ends of the earth. Uh, but the, the ancient world is not like the modern world, where news can travel with a Facebook post or a news article that you find on CNN or Fox News or CNBC or MSNBC. Um, rather, in the ancient world, if news is to travel, it has to travel by word of mouth, it has to travel on foot, or it has to travel through letters. And letter writing itself is, in many ways, kind of a lost art. I the other day, had to write a, a letter to one of our volunteers uh, here at College and Career. It was like a thank you letter. And I realized that I couldn't even remember how to address an envelope anymore. And so I Googled, how do you address an envelope? Because I just couldn't remember. Um, but when I was in elementary school, there, there was all of these sort of practices that were really uh, emphasized. And they were emphasized to, to me as, as a kid as being the sort of things you need to know to be a fully functioning adult. And little did any of my elementary school teachers know that the smartphone would render like all of them obsolete. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the things that I was told is that you need to learn how to write in cursive. So I had classes on cursive, took tests on cursive. I was actually pretty good at writing in cursive. And here was the reason given. When you get to college, you're going to have to take notes on what your professor is saying. And, and cursive is a faster way of writing if you're taking notes on a lecture. I went to college with a laptop, man. Like, I, I didn't need to write anything down. Uh, one of the other things that they really emphasized, uh, one day when you can drive, you might get lost, and there's not going to be anybody to give you directions, so you need to learn how to read a map. And when you get lost, you'll open up your glove compartment, and you'll pull out your map, and, and then you'll figure out where you're going. And so map reading was this thing that was emphasized. And by the time I could drive, like, Siri told me where to go. Like, I'm never without directions unless I'm on a mountain and there's no reception. And then there was letter writing. This was a thing. Like, I took tests on how to write a letter, how to address it properly, dear such and such, comma. And then you write the body, sincerely, Travis. And I don't, I don't know why my teachers actually made me learn this, because we had email 
and we had cell phones. So there were other ways of communicating. But there is something about letter writing that is, is actually a, a more human way of interacting with other people, as opposed to some of the digital mediums that we're so connected to now. A couple of years ago, there was a, uh, an attempt at sort of updating the Bible, in particular the New Testament. It was this uh, single author that did it, and so he basically sort of paraphrases all of the, the Gospels, maybe not even all of the Gospels, some of the Gospels, and then some of the letters of Paul, and in his effort to sort of like update the New Testament, rather than referring to something like Ephesians as the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, he referred to it as the email of Paul to the Ephesians. And so it was like, from paulthepostle at gmail.com to the church in Ephesus at hotmail.com, cc, God, I, it was unbearably cheesy. Like, it was, it was one of the lamest things that I've ever seen in my whole life. And, and I know that it was meant to, like, reach the young people and, and connect with them, but it was produced by the sort of person who would preach sermon series on, like, Transformers or the Matrix, and it was just really embarrassing. But, but aside from it actually just being, like, lame, um, it also makes this sort of fatal misstep in assuming that mediums of communication are synonymous with one another, that writing a letter is basically the same thing as writing an email, that you're functionally doing the same thing, and email is just faster. But that's just not true. Like, when you, when you look at the letters of Paul in the New Testament, like the, the letter of Galatians, in that letter, he actually says to the church, uh, see with what large letters I am writing to you. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Like there's something about that relationship between Paul and the church in Galatia that they can recognize his handwriting. Like there's such a connection there that when he says, look at the letters, you know it's me, based on the handwriting. There's no equivalent for that in email. I mean, it could be like, I, Paul, sign my name in Jokerman font so that you know that it's me or something. <laughs> so, like there's, there is no equivalent there. There's a level of personal interaction that, that can't be replicated by a machine. But there's also a level of care and precision that writing something by hand requires. I, I constantly have to go back and check my sent messages because I can't remember what I said to people. Like people ask me a question and I'm like, I think I answered that. I don't really remember what I said though. And I go back and I read it and I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty good. But, but email, text message, um, social media messaging, all of these mediums are thoughtless. Like we speak without thinking. Uh, in many ways, you have a computer telling you what to say, right? If you have Grammarly installed on your computer or Siri or autocorrect or whatever, the words that are being produced aren't even coming from your own consciousness. But, but to write something by pen and by hand, it requires that you conscientiously produce these words. And they have to come out of your own mind. Paul, in 62 AD, from prison, chooses to write a letter to the church in Corinth. And he chooses his words really carefully. And the way that he describes the realities of salvation and what God has done in Jesus, it's, it's not flippant or accidental. He's not just stringing words together. This isn't the, the ancient equivalent of an email. Uh, this is more thoughtful than that. This is more intentional than that. And so I want to spend some time just looking at, at a couple of the ways that he frames salvation, what it means to be redeemed. As I said, this is kind of one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Um, and so let me just read for you from verse 3 through to our text from 7 to 10. It says this, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, the, be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul starts by praising the Father, and this is an incredibly sort of Trinitarian passage of Scripture, but he praises the Father for adopting us and saving us. And then he begins to unpack what that adoption, what that salvation looks like. And so in verse 7, he says, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That word redemption is one that is still sort of in our common language. We still use this phrase. It gets used in the church. It's in all of our really terrible top 40 songs that play on Christian radio. It gets put on all of our really cheesy Christmas cards and coffee mugs. And it's always applied to salvation. But it, oh, I just hit that mic. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't just get used by Christians. Uh, it gets used also in sort of the wider world. Uh, you can see in something like two rival teams playing each other. Uh, when one team loses and then there's a rematch, uh, commentators will refer to this as like their shot at redemption. Uh, or, or maybe you've got a, a friend who's failed you in some way, but then they come through for you in some really incredible way, and you say things like, they've redeemed themselves in my eyes. But Paul is not a 21st century American writing an email, right? He's a first century Jew writing a letter. And so when he uses that term redemption, there's a whole sort of cultural background behind it that's not implied by our sports references, uh, or not implied in our really terrible Christian songs. Because for Paul, the, the phrase redemption ultimately finds its meaning and explanation in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the term redemption first appears in the book of Exodus, when God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. But then it appears in rapid succession in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the books of the Bible that perpetually foil your plan to read the Bible in a year. Because you get to it and you give up. Because there's all these crazy laws and obscure realities and you don't really know what to do with it. And so you just say, I'm, I'm going to go back to reading John. Which we'll do this year because John's a good book. But throughout uh, all of these laws that we may struggle with, there's this perpetual theme of redemption. And there's actually this title applied to people as redeemers. The word is goel. But here's the interesting thing in the Old Testament. Every time redemption is mentioned, it's mentioned as the responsibility of one family member to another who's fallen on hard times. So, for example, uh, if in the ancient world uh, you had a, a brother or a sister or, or a, an aunt or an uncle who fell into extreme poverty and had to sell their land to be able to pay their debts, uh, Leviticus 25, I think it is, actually says to you that your responsibility before God is to become their redeemer and buy back that land for them, uh, to purchase it back so that they won't fall into this sort of uh, abject poverty. Uh, or if you have a family member who doesn't even have enough belongings to pay their debt, they can't even sell everything, and so they ultimately have to sell themselves into slavery, which was a common practice in the ancient world, Leviticus says your responsibility is to become their redeemer and buy them out of slavery. 
This is your duty as a member of the family, that you would, in their most low and broken position, step in and raise them back up. Or then you can go to numbers. And in numbers, it's things like, if a family member of yours is murdered, uh, it's your responsibility to become their redeemer and specifically advocate for justice on their behalf. Here's the point, again and again and again, redemption is tied to family relationships. Here's why this matters. Paul's just said we've been adopted and God has become our redeemer. What, what Paul's describing here is the process of God becoming our father. That's what salvation is. It's God stepping into this role as our father. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, Christ is referred to as our elder brother. It's God stepping into these roles and fulfilling his responsibility as he makes us a part of his family. But we become a, a part of the family of God by adoption. That's what Paul says, that we've been adopted in Christ. And adoption is a very different way of entering a family. Uh, a number of years ago, I read this book uh, by uh, a theologian out of Birmingham, Alabama, and it was about this a season in the life of his family, and it sort of began with his wife and his son going over to the Ukraine to help in an orphanage. And in this particular region, there was a mass influx of orphans, and there weren't enough people to care for these orphans, and so uh, Christian missionaries were going over there and just serving as sort of helping hands to, to be able to care for all these kids. And they met a girl in this orphanage who was about five or six years old named Sasha. And, and within about a week of them being there, the, uh, the mother and son both said, you know, we as a family have often talked about adoption. And I feel like Sasha might be the person that, that we should adopt. Uh, they just developed this deep love for this girl. And so they sent this email back to the dad who was still in Birmingham and said, hey, we've met this girl at this orphanage. Uh, she's been here for years. We really feel like God might be calling us to adopt her. And the dad said, okay, I know we've talked about this, but we really need to think through what this means. Adopting from a foreign country is a big deal. It's, it's not easy. And then he got another email back. And they said, hey, we just talked with the orphanage director. And we figured out why she hasn't been adopted. And it's because the doctors have uh, diagnosed her as HIV positive. And so every time she's gone up for adoption, when the adoptive parents have found out about this, they've all backed out because they're afraid of the stigma associated with the disease, because they're afraid of the medical costs that would be required, because they're afraid of what it would cost for them to make this girl a part of their family. And ultimately, the, the author and his wife and family go through the process of adopting this girl. Uh, and that's what the whole book is about, is, is the process of adopting her out of the Ukraine and bringing her into the United States. But sort of said, sort of sheds light on this reality. Um, adoption is a very different way of becoming a parent. Uh, when, when somebody gives birth to uh, a, a biological son or daughter, uh, they kind of don't really know what they're about to step into. I mean, they, they can know some things from the, the tests that doctors can run, but it is, it is, a, it is an unknown reality. But in adoption, parents walk in with their eyes wide open. They, they know all of these things. They're aware of uh, some of the risks that are associated with bringing a particular child into their family, and they choose to do it anyways. Here's what Paul says. God adopts us into his family and becomes our redeemer. That, that has profound implications, because what that means is that God knows the weight of 
your mistakes. He knows uh, the weight of your sin, the weight of your shame, uh, your grief, your pain, your sorrow. And with eyes wide open, he chooses even still to bring you into his family. And I know for some of you, you you don't have great parents. Uh, You have fathers in name only, mothers in name only, people who are biologically your mother and father but have not stepped into that role, uh, have not cared for you well. And so hearing uh, that God is a father can in some ways salt the wound. It can be a source of grief. Uh, but, but be encouraged in, in this picture that scripture paints, that God brings us into his family and he steps into that role of redeemer uh, to care for us. But this term redemption uh, is a term that always in the Old Testament, it implies somebody being delivered out of tyranny. So redeemed from slavery, redeemed from poverty, redeemed from injustice. And so uh, I think the next question we ask when we look at something like this is, what does God save us from? What are we redeemed from? What is sort of the the yoke of oppression that God pulls us out of when he he draws us into his family? And there's actually a a huge debate around this. Uh, There's there's two, well, there's more than two, but there's two primary perspectives called theories of atonement. Uh, One of them is called Christus Victor. And Christus Victor says this, Uh, The problem with humanity is that we are held captive by Satan, uh, that we are under his control. And so what Jesus does on the cross is set us free from the power of Satan. He he redeems us from that tyranny. And then the other perspective is called substitutionary atonement. The, The problem with humanity is that we are under the judgment of God for our sins. And so what happens on the cross is that Jesus bears the judgment of God for us and sets us free from slavery to sin. If you order them rightly, think about them carefully. They're actually both right. Uh, But one can't stand without the other. Let me give you maybe a a weird example that ultimately ends in a helpful place. So in kindergarten, I had my first experience with what I would call a frenemy. This is a phrase that I've heard recently. Somebody who you're like kind of close with but also hate in some deep, dark part of your heart. And so there was this guy who sat next to me during free time, who we're going to call Steve, uh, in the interest of protecting his identity. Uh, Steve was a pretty good friend of mine, for the most part. Uh, But in free time, uh, I would draw maps, probably because everybody was telling me I needed to know how to make maps to be a fully functioning adult. And so here's how I would draw maps in kindergarten. I would draw stick figures at the top left corner, and then I would draw a box, which was a treasure chest, at the bottom corner. Uh, And then I would put my pen on the end next to the stick figures and I'd just scribble until it connected with the treasure chest. Okay, so even in uh, elementary school and kindergarten, I know that these maps are one of a kind. They're unique. They're like modern art in some ways. They can't be replicated. But one day Steve says to me, hey, I really like that map you just made. Can you make me one? And I was like, yeah, man, here's some stick figures. And I close my eyes and I start scribbling. And he goes, no, I want a map that looks exactly like the one you just made. And I was like, Steve. (laughs) I can't do that, man. And he got really angry. And he threatened me in a lot of ways. He told me he had a genie at home that would make me not believe in Santa. So that terrified me. Um... And then he told me, I heard you call our friend John an idiot on the playground. And if you don't make me a map just like that one, I'll go tell the teacher. 
So now I'm being blackmailed in kindergarten. <laughs> like this is like this Lord of the Flies sort of like everybody's turning on each other. <laughs> so, so for the next like week, I think, I don't know, my sense of time in kindergarten is, is not probably accurate. Um, I'm just like on the verge of tears during free time, just sweating bullets, trying to replicate these maps so, so that I don't get in trouble. And I'm like trying to trace it, but I know in my mind, that you can't trace this. I closed my eyes and scribbled as fast as I could. There's no way. Um, and Steve's like comparing my, my attempts and he, he's like, not good enough. I'm going to talk to my genie or I'm going to tell the teacher. But, but here's, here's what happens in, in this terrible scenario in kindergarten. Um, Steve gains power over me by accusing me. He develops a, a sense of authority over me because he reminds me of my mistakes and he reminds me of the consequences. And so he, he pretty much had me in the palm of his hand. I would try until the end of the day to make those maps because if he told the teacher, the punishment would be that I'd have to move my clip, which would be a terrible thing for a kindergartner to have to do. But what would have happened if my teacher came to me and said, Travis, I, I heard that you called your friend John an idiot on the playground. Um, I want you to know John's forgiven you uh, and, and we're not gonna punish you for this. Steve loses all his power over me because my guilt has been dealt with. This is what happens when God redeems us. It, it, it's not substitution or Christus Victor. It's Christ being victorious through substitution. What Paul says here is this, that in Christ he has redeemed us. Through his blood, he's offered forgiveness for our trespasses. In forgiving our sin and dealing with our guilt, Satan's power over us is destroyed. He can no longer accuse. And this is why Colossians will say that Christ has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is why Hebrews will say that at the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of Satan because he dealt with the ground of our accusation as our substitute. But Paul goes on and he says this. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he talks about how Christ has redeemed us by dealing with our guilt, uh, delivering us from the tyranny of Satan and slavery to sin. And then he says, in his grace, he's revealed to us this mystery, this plan to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, two mistakes that Christians make uh, when we think about eternity. The first mistake we make is that we think that the opposite of heaven is hell. And the second mistake we make is that we think that the purpose of salvation is to die and go to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I affirm the historic Christian position of the reality of hell. I'm not saying that hell doesn't exist. But what I am saying is that hell is not the opposite of heaven. And you can run this test for yourself. There is no place in the Bible where heaven and hell are mentioned in the same sentence. It's always heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are the counterparts. Hell is the reality that exists outside of those two things. And so often, what we think about in salvation is that what Jesus has done is made a way for us to die and leave earth and go to heaven. But that's not what God's up to when you read the Bible. His interest is not in taking people out of earth and putting them in heaven. It's bringing heaven and earth back together. 
It's uniting these two things that have been torn apart by sin. That's why the Bible doesn't end with every Christian dying and going to heaven. It ends with heaven coming to earth and God once more dwelling among people. That's why Paul says that God has revealed to us the mystery of his will to unite all things in heaven and on earth, to bring these two opposites that have been torn apart by sin back together. Doing this in Christ, just like he's taken humanity that's been torn apart and united it back together. Here's why I think that this is a grace. Here's why I think Paul sees this incredible reality behind what God reveals to us, this plan to unite all things. Um, Right around the time that I was making maps as a kid uh, and being blackmailed by my friend Steve, um, I started taking art lessons with my uncle. Uh, And I really just wanted to know how to draw like Super Saiyan Goku. Uh, But my uncle had no interest in teaching me how to draw that. Uh, He started with things like circles and squares and lines because everything in reality is ultimately composed of these primary shapes. And so as he's teaching me how to draw a line, he says, you know, most people, when they draw a line, they sort of put their pen on the paper and they watch their pen as they draw. And their lines end up crooked because they're watching the pen. So here's how you should draw a line, he said. Uh, You draw two points, a beginning point and an end point. You place your pen on the beginning point and then you look at the end point as you draw and your line will actually come out uh, more, sh- more clear, more straight, more symmetrical. There is something about having a sense of the end towards which something's oriented that changes the way that we operate in the present. There's something about knowing the end that affects the reality of the here and now. I mean, imagine if you were to like decide, along with reading the Bible in a year, Uh, that you were also going to start working out consistently. And when you got your membership to UFIT, they gave you a picture of what you would look like if you actually stuck with that plan for six months. That would be a great marketing ploy. And people would actually stick to the plan because they would know this is what's coming and that affects today. This is is what God does in, in showing us the end to unite all things. He says, this is where creation's going. This is the dot towards which the line is ascending. This is where it all ends. This affects here and now. If, if we believe that God's plan is ultimately to unite all things in Christ and heaven and on earth, that means that what you do here and now matters. That means that the way that you care for the world and steward the earth, that actually matters because God's not just gonna take you out of it and let it burn. If you believe that one day with your very eyes, you and every other Christian in this room will see Jesus together, you'll treat them differently here and now. Understanding the end towards which God has created the world radically affects the way that we live in the here and the now. This is why Paul says this, that according to the riches of his grace, he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose that he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. It's why we can pray with great confidence, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that one day those two realities won't be separate anymore, but they'll come together in Christ's return. The first time that God shows himself to be a redeemer is in the book of Exodus. And when he redeems the people of Israel, there's two signs that accompany it. Uh, The first of which is that they pass through the waters of the Red Sea as this 
a massive body of water is separated. The second sign is that they eat bread and they drink wine in the Passover. What Paul says is that in Christ, God has accomplished redemption again. And those two signs are repeated in the life of the church. Christians pass through the waters of baptism. And they eat and they drink the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. And so here's my invitation to you. If you are a Christian, if you've passed through the waters of baptism, uh, we want to invite you now as we prepare to take communion uh, to, to mark uh, this great memorial of our redemption uh, in bread and in wine.